HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's show, we have executive chef Jeremy Solomon of the Eddy in the East Village. He discussed with us how his Hungarian's grandmother being proud is not the same as her approval. Later on, we have Elke live in studio who talks about finding herself in another person's persona. So welcome, sit back, and enjoy another week's episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Elkie, who will be performing live in studio later on. But first up, Jeremy Solomon, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for having me here. We almost got through a little bit of small talk. Yes, we managed. We we almost got there. Weather. Yes. Trips. Yeah, we covered it all. We covered grandparents, grandmothers. Yeah, that's the important stuff. And we both have Hungarian grandmothers. Oh, okay. I don't. Uh, oh, yes, that's right. You yes. did tell me that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which is where you learned to cook? Uh, yeah. I mean, I learned from both grandmothers, sure. Uh, but the Hungarian cuisine came from my Hungarian grandmother. What did you learn from either grandmother, or what do you remember? Like, did they have different techniques or different dishes? Or sure. Yeah. My my mom's. Uh, mother, uh, she really taught me how to like make a great roast chicken and like the perfect chocolate cake. That's the Hungarian grandmother. That's my my mom's oh. mother. She's not the Hungarian okay. one. Uh, she's actually a Sephardic, uh, which is like Jewish Greek. And then my uh, my father's mom is the Hungarian one, Agi, uh, and she taught me uh, yeah how to just like cook Hungarian cu- uh, cuisine, how to like cook in big batches, how to feed like fifty people at once. I mean, I remember a lot of uh, browns and oranges and, like, not anything that's particularly photoed. Nothing that you would call Instagrammable. Yeah, no food porn. No food porn at all, but just, you know, very delicious, long-time cooking, Mm -hmm. patience beyond patience. Yeah, it was all just, like, gray, red sauces. (laughs) Nothing really that appealing, but all delicious. Um, And she also, like my grandmother and my grandfather, fled. Uh, Nazi Hungary. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't flee. They were in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. So I guess they didn't make it. But she escaped? Yeah, she escaped. And her husband, my my grandfather, who uh, he passed away in 2005. Um, yeah, they both escaped. My grandfather has this really crazy story um, where basically he stole Nazis' clothes and, like, walked out of the camp, uh, hid in a wine cellar. And my grandmother, um, like, swam, uh, swam across a river uh, with, a, like, a huge fur coat. And she survived on lemons for a few days. It's, like, absolutely amazing. Um, but she's she's still kicking. And uh, she's actually quite a pistol, so... <laughs> That is that is pretty impressive. Uh, and did they? I mean, our grandparents had a really interesting relationship with food as we were growing up. Like you had to finish all your cereal, all your food. Nothing mm-hmm. could be wasted. Do you find similar? Yeah, I uh, I was always way too skinny. Uh, even like you know when you're a teenager and you like feel really fat, but you look really skinny. <laughs> and uh, I always had to. Um, yeah, I always had to be eating when you when you went over to our house. Both grandmothers. I mean, Jewish grandmothers always need to feed you. So. And what were some of the dishes that you remember from your youth? And what were some of the things that kind of stuck with you as you began to like develop your culinary palate? Yeah, um, some of the dishes growing up. Uh, I mean, it was it was interesting because I learned something different from like the uh, the women in my life. So my mother and both my grandmothers. My mother was more of like necessity, um, you know, cooking. F- for us after school, meatballs and lasagna, you know, kind of like those quick fixes. Um, and then my, uh, her mother really just taught me how to cook more like, like French food, Greek food, um, how to like roast that chicken. Um, I remember brisket and, uh, kugel being like huge staples in my diet, um, especially on Friday and Saturday nights. And my grand, my Hungarian grandmother was always, uh, palacinta, which is like a Hungarian crepe and also, uh, fried, uh, fried veal cutlet. So, mm. um, yeah, a lot of heavy foods growing up now that I think about it. It's probably a very fat child. I mean, brisket for us was always, 
more of like a specialty, like Passover mm-hmm. type of meal. I don't remember like too much brisket on the on the regular. Yeah, no, we were we were a brisket loving family, and uh, we used to have I think Lipton onion soup mix was combined in that like sauce with fried shallots on top of it. It was a uh, I had that pretty much every other week. I think my mom uh, made this chicken growing up, and my brother and I begged her begged her to know the recipe and she was she never would and then one day she's like okay and it was um a bottle of french dressing mm-hmm. uh eight ounces of apricot preserves and a packet of the lipton's mm-hmm. french and that was it apricot preserves are the that's the secret ingredient to everything so kind of like finding out that the you know the tooth fairies or santa claus isn't real you know you just as a jewish lip- kid was it hard to find out that santa claus wasn't real uh, I mean, what was cool is that I had that advantage of knowing already, you know, about my friends, and then be, my parents would be like, "Don't tell their, you know, kids." Uh, so, I mean, how, I mean, apricot preserves. You're just like, oh, this like puts texture in, and it's a sweetness, yeah. and it's just, yeah. But you, you found when I found when we found out that recipe, we went everything's a sham. Yes, basically, uh, and also, uh, you know, when you'd find out like people would put soy sauce. I'd put my grandmother put soy sauce in a lot of things. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and you grew up in Florida. Mm-hmm. And what type of cooking jobs did you have there? And what was the re- restaurants you got your start in? Sure. I, so I think my first cooking job was at a, it was at my, yeah, my grandparents' country club. Uh, this is my non-Hungarian uh, grandparents. And I started out scooping ice cream or sorbets for big banquets, like 200 martini glasses of just like three different flavors of sorbets and gelatos. They'd give me a freezer jacket and I would like listen to music and sit there for two hours in the freezer. What was on your playlist? Uh, I think I, I remember Elton John and the Beatles because my father was really big into Elton John and the Beatles. Uh, and also I think ABBA <laughs> I listened to a bunch of like actually pretty good music for that age. Uh, and occasionally some pop stuff, you know, Britney Spears, I definitely rocked out to a lot. <laughs> Just like, who was the, who was the soundtrack to get the, like the fastest 200 uh, glasses filled? Who really kicked things into high gear? Whitney. Whitney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, do you hear that song now and it takes you right back to the freezer jacket and the three scoops? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then what came first? Was it coming to New York and, and working at Bouvette and Prune or did you travel to, to Hungary? I... It was first, uh, I, I came to New York when I was 18 uh, to attend culinary school. I went to the CIA and then I dropped out. But it was after that, I was at Prune, a Bouvet, uh, and La Conda Verde, and then the Eddie, um, where I'm in the chef now. But uh, Why I, did you drop out? I dropped out because I couldn't learn how to saute from a textbook anymore. Uh, I'd also just come from a working background my entire life, and I just missed that that hustle. Uh, I learned better by doing. So So when you graduated from scooping sorbet Mm -hmm. to cooking in Florida, and then you got into the almost, did it feel like a setback almost coming to culinary school where, like, I know how to do this? A little bit. I I mean, I would never want to come off as, like, cocky. I mean, I'm sure there was things that, like, you just obviously know, um, especially if, like, you've been working in kitchens. And I did learn a few things, for sure. Uh, but it just, you know, they were just really hard on, like, like you got to learn how to do this from a textbook. And I just, that's not how I learned. So, mm. so um, of the three places, the Condor Verde, Bouvet, uh, and Prune, 
what did you pick up there and you know kind of each of three like what were some of the lessons you took away because they are relatively different kitchens and experiences yeah i i think i took away how to especially from prune um gabrielle's such a i mean such a talented amazing chef uh i think from her i, I taught how i was taught how to cook simply but you know um to that everything is like elegant and beautiful and it should be the best quality if you're going to do something really simple. Um, and I think that also carried over to Bouvet. Uh, Jody kind of has that same ethos, like just um, cook simply, but make sure it's like the best of the best ingredients that, and when it's plated, it's absolutely like, it's unassuming. Um, you don't know, like you're about to have this flavor trip in your mouth. Um, and Lakanda was my first introduction to like a real big brigade system in Manhattan, um, you know, whatever, like 10, 12 line cooks and, uh, there being like tiers and layers of like garmage cooks and tournants and junior sous chefs, like four junior sous chefs and like, you know, three different sous chefs and, um, and being able to communicate across the board and find your way in that sort of kitchen. Uh, that's how, you know, I learned how to like really hustle from Lakanda. And and how did how was that shift going from a very small kitchen to being almost part of a much larger team and being hyper focused on one area or a couple areas as opposed to when you're focusing on almost everything? Yeah, that was a big shock. A lot of crying in the walk-in refrigerator. Why? Um, <laughs> just the 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 int- it's it's strange cuz you said it you said it right that in a smaller restaurant you're so hyper aware of everything that's going on everything's happening so close to you so something that you know that's something that's not your responsibility all of a sudden is whereas like in a bigger restaurant um you have to like cutting that cucumber for the garmage station is like the most important thing of your day and there's you can't do anything else um so it was it definitely was overwhelming and hard not to um, hard not to attend to those problems. What was the decision for you to go to Hungary? Um, and how long were you there? Yeah, so I went to Hungary after um, my tenure as sous chef at the Eddy, and about and this relates about seven and six years ago, I found this cookbook uh, that was written by George Lang, who's a Hungarian restaurateur, uh, and it was the only and first ever Hungarian cookbook I've come across, The Cuisine of Hungary. It's on my shelf. Oh, yes. It's quite an excellent, extensive, thought-out book um, that's really beautiful. And it was the only copy at the, the Strand Bookstore, and I freaked out. I called my grandmother, and I'm like, why didn't you tell me about this? And, you know, she, that's no good answer for me. So, um, and I just kept reading through the, the whole like first whatever 100 a few pages are like a history of hungry and i like took a highlighter and just went through it and was like this does not seem like the cuisine that my grandmother taught me or i knew and i just became really fascinated by it so over the years it's just the urge to go back because i i'd been there a few times when i was younger um grew um so yeah that's that's where it stemmed from and when i was finished being a sous chef uh, at the eddie i decided to go over and how did you set up the trip? Did you stage? Did you explore? Did you just eat? There's so many different ways to go. Mm-hmm. Did you have relatives there, connections? How did it unfold? Yeah, I have relatives there. Uh, these uh, Actually, a whole bunch. I have a whole family there. Uh, my grandmother's nephew, and it's really like 
that connection and his whole family. So I decided that I was, I was contemplating working, but I did not want to learn how to speak Hungarian, especially when I was like trying to learn about something so, so specific as their cuisine. Um, if just to be there for, I don't know, six months, a year, uh, Hungarian is one of the hardest languages to learn. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to spend time eating and cooking, uh, but like home cooking. So I traveled around, um, I stayed in Nograd, which is like north of Budapest with, um, with my cousins. Uh, and then I went to Budapest where they also have a home and just traveled to different wine regions, different farms, uh, did a lot of home cooking. So yeah. And what were some of the dishes, um, and more importantly, any of the techniques that you brought back from there? Sure. They, in Hungary, they're, they're really big on uh, preserving uh, and making your own like spices. So obviously like paprika or ground caraway, um, preserving sour cherries, making palinka, which is a, it's a, it's like a plum or apricot sort of uh, alcoholic beverage. Um, doing, uh, yeah. And like making a lot of pastries. That's a big <laughs> It's a big thing there. So, um, and layering, everything gets layered, like layered cabbage, uh, doboche tort, which is like a 11 layer chocolate cake, basically. Um, so what I brought back was that the, the whole preserving thing and also layers. Like if you, there's never enough layers, there's never enough flavor in any of Hungarian cuisine. Uh, was 11 the most layers you saw? Or did you see something that was so preposterous and you're like, come on. Yeah, no, I think 11 <laughs> layers is where it ended. Um, but there, I'm sure there's got to be something out there that beats it. So There's someone out there who's just the layer queen yes. of Budapest. Absolutely. No one, makes, no one makes more layers. We were contemplating at the restaurant doing, like, I, I told my sous chef, well, let's do a, a doboche tort. And he's like, oh, that's 11 layers. I was like, yes. So we're going to do 20 layers and it'll be huge and food pouring across the board. And then people from Hungary will come and eat at the re- They will see this and they will book plane tickets and a restaurant yes. will be full. Yes. The, so done deal. We're going to take a quick musical break, uh, play a song from our archive. And we're uh, back on Snacky Tunes with Jeremy here on Heritage Radio Network.
So let's take one step back. Um, after La Bouvette and Prune and the Conde Verde, you found yourself at the Eddy. How did you make your way there, and, and where did you start? Um, yeah, so I... actually, Well, actually, if you're go- going uh, chronological order, so the Eddy was after uh, Bouvette and Via Carota, and I... Um, I just found, I just started honestly I just started applying to a hundred different places. Uh, I had to find a job quick so I could uh, afford my place in Harlem. <laughs> and yeah, I happened across the Eddie. The chef was uh, Brendan McHale, who I love and adore. And he was just doing a really he was doing unique uh, unique food that was a take on like Catskill, like Northern New York um, fishing and game and going to the market, um, ourselves like four or five days a week. So I was really into that. Um, and I applied and just started out as the line cook there. Um, and then just worked my way up. What was the cuisine when you got there? Uh, yeah. So it was more of, um, I don't want to say cats. Yeah. So like cats go like lots of fish. He was, mm-hmm. Brendan was super into, uh, fly fishing um so there's all sorts of fish on the menu different crudos and octopus um and he changed up the fish like bi-weekly but yeah now not so much fish and it's really interesting i mean the it is hungarian inspired food Mm -hmm. how did you begin to approach changing a menu while keeping the same name i mean it's it's not so often that a restaurant will go so hard to like a completely different background inspiration and focal yeah. point. They might go a little bit to left, a little bit to right, pulling a little bit here, but it's very different from where it began. Yeah. That's something that we struggle with a little bit. Um, especially because the name Eddie, I mean, that could be like my great uncle or something that was Hungarian. I don't know. Well, my <laughs> dad's name is Eddie. Okay. Of Hungarian descent. Spelled oh. E-D-D-Y, not short for Edward or anything. So when I saw it, I was like, Oh, of course. Oh, great. Eddie. Okay, so we'll just go with that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, so that's like, awesome. um, it was the host of this podcast's father's name, yes, Eddie. Yes, there you go. Yeah. It's not a calm spot in a river. Yeah, that's no, 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 it's not. not it's it a is. guy's name. Um, born of Hungarian descent. It's. It was definitely... Uh, it's, it is still difficult to find that balance of... We, you know, we didn't want to fully go hungarian uh because we wanted to we didn't want to scare people away we didn't want to become just a uh, another like destination weekend spot we had to find that balance of being approachable but also uh something new and unique and especially teaching uh teaching the this generation of, of manhattan uh what hungarian cuisine is or was is uh and translating that into modern day food is a really difficult task. Um, so kind of combining all different aspects of my past. So that might be some Jewish influences and some Southern influences, um, taking staples like chicken liver and mussels, uh, and trout and taking things that people are familiar with, but then, um, uh, combining them with different flavor profiles of Hungarian cuisine. If someone who had no idea came in and, and asked, what is the essence of Hungarian cuisine? How would you describe it? What's the essence of Hungarian cuisine? Uh, no. Um, paprika. That's <laughs> it. Uh, all you have to, if you put paprika in anything, it's automatically Hungarian. Um, no, the, I mean, that's part, partly true. Uh, but 
Hungarian cuisine is, it's about, it's, it's like a celebration. I think that's really what, I know that's like a very big answer, but that's, that's really what it is. And in, in Hungary, they will like lots of food, lots of people. That's, and they'll have like giant sheet cakes with plums in it. And they'll have paprikash and goulash, which are, you know, these meaty stews that come in huge cauldrons. And it's like, you can never have enough food and there's never enough people to feed and there's never enough drinks. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's really what Hungarian cuisine is. And what is a dish that you feel really is an, um, a symbol of modern Hungarian cuisine that made it on there? And, and how do you trace back the roots of how it came to be? Uh, hmm. I think palacinta for me sums it up. And that came from my grandmother. Uh, and in Hungary, in Hungary, palacinta is primarily eaten. It's a Hungarian uh, crepe. Uh, you got a little seltzer to it at the end. It's a, it's a bit eggier. Uh, than a normal like French thin crisp crepe, um, but you eat it with dessert. And normally, it's stuffed with like jams and fruits and nuts, and finished with like chocolate sauce and whipped cream. But also, you can use it as like a naan um, and stuff like braised chicken paprikash in there, uh, or do pork belly inside of it, and just kind of use it to grab different pickles. Um, so I think that's a really fascinating staple dish of Hungarian cuisine, also chicken paprikash, but palacinta is, um, for me, that, that touches uh, on home, because my grandmother used to make that every Sunday night. Have you cooked for the Hungarian grandmother with your modern interpretation, and what has been her response, if so? Uh, unfortunately, I've not been able to cook with her, uh, and, and give her my modern day interpretation of it. Um, she's just... Uh, it's hard for me to get down to Florida and she's in her nineties now. So even like me just coming in and cooking for her is a whole to do. Um, but hopefully I will get the opportunity to do so. I have spoken to her over the phone and she's, I don't know if she approves. I think she just, obviously she'll never tell me that. She just always tell me how proud, proud she is. But when I told her that I was doing like this palachinta with just blueberry jam because blueberries are in season and it got topped with this toasted meringue she was like that's nice but <laughs> have you considered putting like yoohoo chocolate syrup in it and finishing it with some sweet and low she's like oh god like so i think her vision of it is now a little twisted but since age has done that to her but uh but yeah, I did make chicken paprikash back in the in the winter and did my own thing on it. And she was, I sent her some photos and she was super proud. So my grandmother makes this uh, chocolate cake that part of the recipe comes from that mm-hmm. that book, and you know that's like coffee liqueur and mm-hmm. instant coffee and like the cake mix uh, is just like from Duncan Hines. Yeah, and I, I when I made it the first time, a part of my childhood was both uh, forever enshrined because I can now make it, and then quietly died as well because I realized how this tasted good because a lot of this was not real. Mm-hmm. Very chemically driven. Yeah. I feel that... No, I mean, she didn't use... She didn't do a lot of cake mixes. Both my grandmas actually didn't do a lot. Of, what bothered me the most was uh, mashed potatoes came from a box. That was mind-blowing to me. Was, that is Now I look back on that and I was like, uh, I mean, it's still delicious, but it's incredibly mind-blowing. <laughs> One of the other aspects um, is you run a nice kitchen. 
Um, you're a proud member of the LGBTQ community. Yes. Did you find that any struggles coming up through the culinary world that we're hearing about? And, and how did your experiences influence the way that you run your kitchen? Sure. I, I didn't struggle, I would say, but I definitely was, you know, I, I witnessed or was subjected to, you know, kind of that like toxic masculinity um, in the kitchen that you had to act a certain way um, or if you brought up anything that was just outside the realm of, um, you know, like a dick joke or, you know, Star Wars or, um, you know, I don't know, just something like really foul and kind of just really messed up or doing cocaine, like that was like you were automatically like you were gay. Didn't like there was, I used to work with um, somebody who was just like flamboyant, but he was very uh, certain about his sexuality and uh, everyone would, they would just tease him, call him gay all the time. And uh, because he, because he acted a different way. So um, witnessing that, I knew that one day when I ran my own kitchen, that was just, everyone would be treated fair and equal. And if you wanted to listen to Whitney or, ABBA or if you wanted to talk about the Broadway show that you saw yesterday or whatever it is, whatever you want to talk about, um, that was okay. So, um, so yeah, that's how I run my kitchen now. And do you have to course correct anybody that comes in from other kitchens or, and if you do, how do you break them of bad habits? Uh, old habits die hard. Uh, and you know, I can't worry about an, you know, an older line cook that comes in uh, that might have been there or, you know, and how they feel about, you know, uh, a nice kitchen. Uh, I can't really, I just have to be myself. Uh, my sous chef has, has to be himself and our kitchen will just flow naturally. Um, I, if I sit there and think about how I can kind of break the mold or break them, that's, it starts getting very technical and detailed and that's just, I have bigger fish to fry. So it's either like, hop on board this train, you know, we're teaching you, you know, I'm giving you the respect and I hope that you'll give me that respect back. Um, but it's, it's proven to be a real challenge, uh, for sure. It's, it's not easy. And I'm sure other chefs and cooks across Manhattan and across the country are currently dealing with it. Um, because there is a shift in this, in our industry, uh, a big shift and it's not finished yet. So, um, I, uh, I applaud anybody that that is trying to reassess their kitchen and, and, and give it a better environment. Do you have a success story of someone that came in completely old school and after six months to a year was like, I get it and I, I feel that this is better? Uh, I w not yet, no. <laughs> uh, everyone, for the most part, uh, has been really wonderful to to work with um you know everybody has their their thing but uh and things to work on but uh everybody has been just so um nice to each other and there's just like you know i think once i set the the bar like in the president that like you can be whoever you want to be in this kitchen as long as you show respect to everybody you treat everyone fairly then um i don't know that works out well so, chef yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank Where you. Where can people find you? Um, how can they make reservations? How can they come eat your modern interpretation of Hungarian cuisine? Sure, yeah. We're at The Eddie, uh, your 
father. <laughs> yes. The, the, you can retro namesake. Uh, yes. Uh, so we're the Eddie. We're located on uh, East 6th Street between 2nd and 1st Ave. Um, that's the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, you can make your reservations online at OpenTable or through the website at theeddynyc.com. And I do have an Instagram, Jeremy Cooks, at Jeremy Cooks. Perfect. So That wasn't taken? Uh, no, it wasn't. I was surprised when like a good one is just sitting there. <laughs> just so easy. Just so easy. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, we're going to take another quick musical break from our archives, and then we'll have Elkie live in studio here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satari's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth generation cheesemakers combine old world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. This week, it's the season finale of Meet and Three. We're following up our episode about youth with a look at age and how aging affects life on farms and in kitchens. At the the most basic level, we need people to grow food for a growing global population. The question of planning for retirement or old age as a cook, it's almost one that doesn't exist bizarrely until it's too late. We also have a story about a food that might be older than you think. A recent archaeological finding might have crossfitters everywhere reevaluating their diets. Plus, a story about one of Atlanta's most historic and risque landmarks. There are dancers that have been there 20 and 30 years. Don't miss our season finale of Meat and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Alki, welcome to Thank the show. You. So, you came to New York as Kayla. I did. And you were a model. I was. And then that didn't happen anymore. No, it didn't. Uh, but one of you had one of the best lines for bios that I've read. And I just want to read it. Uh, it said, you kind of hung around New York until Elkie arranged herself around you. It's a beautiful sentence. Thank you. How did she arrange herself? And when did Kayla become Elkie? Um, well, I still, you know, funnily enough, kind of feel like Kayla. Like, I kind of feel like Elkie is this thing that I'm always reaching for. Um, but it's, it's matured over time in a way that, um, I've enjoyed a lot. (laughs) When did she first show up and how did you realize it was something besides yourself? Um, it was when I stopped depending on people because I was always kind of collaborating or finding a way through other people to feel comfortable. And I got to the point where I just sat with myself for probably like a year and it kind of like all of it came together and what were the early hints i mean it's so interesting about people developing personas outside of themselves almost as like well i wouldn't do it but elkie would <laughs> yeah, like same. kayla would never do that but elkie <laughs> she's totally that's to, that's a totally elkie when did that become and when it and how did you name her um well i named her because so my my grandmother's name was elkie and when she when she had my mother, she put um, Elkie where she put her name where my mother's name was supposed to be. She was born in Spain, so she couldn't really backwards. Yes, yeah. yes, so <laughs> out of order. It's completely out of order. So there's just this elk. It's kind of like ironically, a, it, it's a family name, and um, I, yeah, I, I, I've actually always wanted to use it as a as a band name. And it, the moment that I realized how powerful that name was and how much it meant to me and 
the the power behind not being able to meet somebody it, it not to be possible to meet someone you've always wanted to meet um it's kind of like a it's a fire for me it's a and when you perform is it full alky or is there sometimes in moments kayla shows up on stage like oh god, oh god get me out of here don't know okay, well when kayla it's funny because the the it's so the way that uh kayla and alky interact with each other as I suppose is is a good balance and Kayla likes being there Elkie likes being there Elkie's just a little more Elkie's more of a performer and more of like the who you would see on the billboard but I, I, I like that that Kayla's still there and that I still feel like Kayla because I'm a person I like ha- going back and forth between this grand like strong like vision of who I want to be but also still being myself it's like um, when I was starting out and doing events and, and planning, uh, I felt very limited within my creativity. But I had a friend who I thought was the top of the game. So whenever I would get challenged, I would just say, well, if I was them, what would they do? Mm-hmm. And then that eventually became what would I do? But I never asked them. I just imagined them. And somehow the disassociation allowed me to like find new levels of creativity do you feel that when you're writing or performing or anything that you go, well, I couldn't do it, but El- what would Elkie do? Or how would she do this? Or how would she approach this? Or is it just another variation of yourself? I actually don't, never think of it like that. Like when I'm, when I'm writing, I feel, it, it, it's funny. I, I, writing is kind of like meditation to me. I know the idea of meditation is not to think at all, but it's, it, when I write, I'm thinking so well like it's a direction and it takes me somewhere and it's me it's it's Kayla and I feel like um the way that Elkie gets involved is is it's just kind of through like the the strength because like I write about feeling weak and I write about feeling strong and I I write about everything but then uh I guess Elkie would take that and project it so I, I always feel like Kayla until it's time to like give people a slap in the face, like a, like a, here I am feeling. Can we hear a song? Absolutely. What are you going to play for us first? So the first song I'm going to play is called Asshole. Am I allowed to swear? Sweet. Okay. It's a podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> no, the rules. Uh, yeah, this is one I actually recently wrote, um, and it has a bit of a country vibe to it, which is something I've been messing with. Something doesn't add up when I'm told what you've done. A name to a face that just doesn't grab on. Your actions reflect how much you hate yourself. Your dark black hole is in no way our fault. An asshole ain't an asshole unless you give him the power Change up that word, a weenie's a coward Don't prove yourself to a weenie It's not worth the time, reassurance Yeah, yourself is just fine So when you're approached 
by an asshole. Take a quick moment to see if you did something wrong. But if that asshole is just an asshole, gracefully you can do whatever you want. But remember, kids, always be smart. An asshole ain't an asshole unless you give it the power. Change up that word that we need a coward. Don't prove yourself to a weenie It's not worth the time Insurance And yourself is just fine And I still ain't an asshole Unless you give him the power Change a better word A weenie is a coward Don't prove yourself to a weenie It's not worth the time Your debut EP came out uh, in June, Bad Metaphors, about breakups and past relationships, three songs. Is it three breakups or is it three songs about one really bad breakup? It's like every breakup ever in a blender. (laughs) So is there multiple breakups within one song? Yes. Oh my gosh. All right. Pick one song and break down the breakups in the song. So, without the eye, actually, is... Uh, which is what opened up the show. Which is, yeah. <laughs> um, that song is... It's actually... There's a lot of different people in that song. They're all men. Um, you Only Call Me When You're Drunk was from uh, my first relationship in the city. It was my first love. And we had a really Ooh. long, kind of ch- childlike, beautiful love but it was not sustainable and he was awful in so many ways and wonderful in so many ways um but that lasted for a really long time probably years after we'd broken up it took me a long time to unclench him and he would call me when he would get drunk at at you know after the relationship had ended and he always kind of seemed to keep coming into my life um and there's actually a direct uh, line from a song that says I watched you tear apart your home you shaved your head we spent that night fully clothed in the tub different boyfriend um, he was a I, I also had a, a strong love for him as well uh, we, we were kind of in a, a we both were figuring out who we were at that point and it wasn't good it wasn't fun it wasn't pleasant it was directed at each other and um, he did that, that happened. Like I was, I came over to his apartment and he went nuts and just like took everything out of his closets. He like tried to shave his head like, and then like it ended with him just running the fa- a faucet of water under his head. And I just sat in the tub with him. Um, and another, I also, uh, I, I also get drunk calls from my dad <laughs> So, like, I always get voicemails of him singing to me. So, and there was a time where uh, we really had to work through our relationship, just kind of growing up and realizing that your parents are people. They're not your saviors. They're not your, they're people who raised you. So, um, I actually think that he had a, a bit of a relation to that as well. What would he sing to you? Oh my gosh, he loves the Beatles. <laughs> he always sings the Beatles. 
Any particular song? And is it early Beatles or like psychedelic Beatles? Early Beatles. Okay. Definitely early Beatles. Like catchy. He's um, my dad was born in the in the '40s, so I, I actually heavily influenced my uh, music because I really like doo-wop, and a lot of that came heavily from my father. Can we hear another song? Can we hear that song? Which one? Uh, you without the eye. Yeah, absolutely. You started in pop music and then you went to country and to, to shoegaze, um, but it wasn't really until you found and owned your voice that you started writing the songs as you are today. What was the process and, and what did you have to square with yourself on finding that and being happy with that voice? You know, it's actually quite literal. Like it's me becoming like the lower my voice has gotten, the more comfortable I've been 
with writing music because I've always kind of had this low register of singing and um, I never fully owned it. I kind of, I've worked in a, a bunch of different bands before this and like we've tried pop things and 80s things and like wispy, girly things, but I, 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 I feel like my own person when I sing in this lower register and it slowly, w once I figured that out about myself, the, everything else that I write makes sense. For the people who are still finding their register, can you talk through where you at least inwardly reflected about, did it feel wrong? Did it feel off before you got to this place of comfort? How did you feel about the voice that was coming inside? Did you try to change it? Did you feel embarrassed by it? Or what were the thoughts? I mean, it's, it's, it actually sounded a lot different. Like it's changed over... How do I say this? It's kind of like, I feel embarrassed how it used to sound. As it was happening, I didn't really analyze it too much. Um, and people kind of would give their opinions. And um, that would kind of adjust. Like I, it, like I listened, I like recorded a bunch of songs in a, when I was first moving to the city. And I remember one of my boyfriends was like, it sounds like you're do doing this with your voice. Like weird, like <laughs> just the, but very just, Enya. Like, yeah. Like just things that I was like trying to sound, I was always trying to sound like somebody else, everything that I'd listened to, everything that I was inspired by. And, um, I, I stopped doing that. I just like slowly stopped doing that. Like as a, as a musician, at least for me, like I had heavy inspirations and I always kind of tried to follow that until it actually, it helped me because it guided me to this, to me. You can't really control how it sounds. You can just control what you do with it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's kind of like love. Preach <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God>. on. <laughs> It's what you do with it. Yeah. Like it'll, sometimes it'll come out and I'm like, I can't stop it. I don't know what direction it's heading in. Um, but I can, I can kind of sculpt it. And there's, it's some of the songs that I've written are completely different than when I wrote them. And what makes a song special to me is when I feel like I've finished, when I closed a thought, it's like sealing the envelope and sending it away. Like it's the, best feeling in the world but after that then I have to add the sound in <laughs> and um yeah it yeah are there are there any songs in your repertoire that you wrote before you became okay with how your voice ends I had to go back and rewrite or change or adapt I kind of I usually I am very I mostly care about lyrics honestly I'm I feel like words like when they hit you in that place it's like a stat like I, I, I live off, I live for that feeling and I always try and portray that with writing. Um, what was your question? <laughs> Did you have to go back and adapt any old songs uh, once you really felt and discovered your voice? Y yes, absolutely. Um, and how did they change? Um, so, uh, actually, Leonard Cohen has a really great quote about um, s um, lyrics and songwriting about how it's kind of a dance. Like, the way that you write the song, sometimes you need to change the way you sing it. And sometimes you need to cut the words a little short. It's like, I kind of feel like I do that with, um, when I revisit songs and I, I know when a song is done, but I, 
so when it hasn't reached that point yet, I still kind of go through that Leonard Cohen-y. What does it feel like to you when it's done? It feels like uh, an, anyone in the world could tell me it's an awful song and I could tell them to go fuck themselves. Amazing. I think we're going to end on that. <laughs> um, I want to thank uh, Chef Jeremy Solomon uh, for coming by. Okay, thank you for coming. Thank Where can you. people find you? Oh, are you playing any, sh- any shows in the summer? Uh, yes, I'm playing at Mercury Lounge on. Um, do you know? You don't. I think it's uh, on September seventh, and then in October. I'm playing at Ludlow House. I, I, I'll, I'll let you guys know. Okay, where, where can people find you? <laughs> um, you can find me on Spotify and my. Do I tell talk about Instagram? Yeah. Instagram is at Elky Music. It is, and Facebook. Do you guys run the Facebook? I run the Facebook. There's an Elky. Yeah, there's an yeah. Elky Facebook. Um, thank you to Hector for setting this up. We appreciate it. We love you, Hector. Yeah, we love you, Hector. He, <laughs> this is why we have publicists for these <laughs> these questions. Um, what is the name of the last song going to play for us? Oh, right. Um, oh, okay. So this song is called... I actually don't have an, a name for it yet because it's kind of a new one. But let's call it Mirror. Great. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with our final episode of this season, of the summer season. Yeah. But then we'll be back in the fall. So We'll always be back. We'll always be back. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. You just come from doing something A lifeline is attached to your cigarette You mumble your mantras under your breath You're always so quick to get upset You gotta leave on your light Face the world with all your might A mirror in the dark It only reflects black You could summon the sun It knows just where you're at Darling, you're up again in your head Mark the location on your map Held hostage by yourself once again Trying to tell if you're drunk when you're alone Where you will dream childhood problems are as special as you make them mirror in the dark only reflects black a mirror in the dark only reflects black a mirror in the dark only reflects black a mirror Dark only reflects black You gotta leave on your light Face the world with all your
Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.